Hey gang, Nick and Mike here, dropping into your feed for one more summer bonus episode. Yes, we're excited. And uh, keep in mind, September, season three arrives. Lost Notes, 1980. It's going to be hosted by the poet and cultural critic Hanif Abdurraqib. His stories are new looks at artists like Grace Jones, Stevie Wonder, Sugar Hill Gang, Darby Crash, a whole bunch of others. And it's a super consequential year for music. We're really excited to bring that season to you. It's going to be seven episodes all at once, all on September 24th. We're putting them all out in one day. We should probably get back to working on them, right? <laughs> and so we shall. But in the meantime, we have a story about a remarkable band from two of our favorite independent producers. Yes, lots of us tried to be in bands in high school. I know I did. And it's fun, right? But high school bands don't usually get to play at CBGB's in the late 70s. They don't usually hang out with David Bowie in the studio. But this band did get to do all that. They're called the Student Teachers. If you're music nerds like we are, you may have come across the student teachers before. Their drummer is Laura Davis Channon, and she wrote an amazing memoir called The Girl in the Back about her time with the band, which is completely worth your reading. And Nacional Records here in L.A. compiled a bunch of their studio recordings. It's called Invitation to the Student Teachers, and it's available on Bandcamp. And this piece is really special, too, and we're kind of excited to add to that wealth of material out there. It's an oral history with a bunch of the band members, Bill Arning on the keys, Lawyer Reese on bass, Laura Davis on drums, Philip Shelley on guitar, Joe Katz on second guitar, and their all-star manager, Jody Rabello. The lead singer, David Scharf, is also in the piece, also known as Jan David Cruel because, well, it was the 70s. <laughs> and two of the very best radio makers in the country created this piece. Lost Notes alum Erica Heilman, who you may remember from season one's episode on the Shags, conducted the interviews, and Sarah Brooke Curtis worked with her to put together the tape. And it's Sarah's voice you'll hear in the piece as well. And like all of our stories on Lost Notes, this piece is about more than just the music. It's about what happens when you get close enough to a dream to touch it and how it changes before your eyes when you do. So without further ado, here is Teenagers Surfing the Wave of the Apocalypse. I've been approached about the student-teacher's story before by people who always seem to have this moralistic agenda to tell this cautionary tale of, you know, young people who are in over their heads or taken advantage of with too much freedom and sex and drugs and rock and roll. And... I definitely want to be clear with you that I actually believe that artistic exploration and that freedom is worth a certain amount of existential risk. And I'd rather live next door to junkies than millionaires any day. And I'm endlessly grateful that we came of age in a place and time like that. And welcome to another edition of The Shape of Things to Come. I'm Bill Floor. And I'm Dean Miller. And our guests this week are the student teachers. And let's start off where everything starts off with. Let's introduce ourselves. Band. Should we say what we play? Yeah, my teachers. Yeah, go ahead. I'm Lori. I play bass. I was more comfortable from the time I was a little kid with what were considered freaks then. I like drag queens. I like boys who tweeze their eyebrows. I wanted them to put my makeup on. JD, I sing. I mean, going to a Dead Boys concert when you're sitting in the front row at CBGB's and Stiv Bader's, you know, ripping out his pubic hair and throwing it at you, that's disgusting. But it was amazing. I'm Laura, I play drums. As teenagers, we were filming gigs for the Mumps. We were helping the erasers build up their sets for their shows. 
we were very involved. And so there was kind of this organic thing that came together. You know, maybe we should, maybe we could do that, you know? I mean, maybe we could do that. I'm Philip, I play guitar. Let's say you had school in one hand and being in a band and hanging out with Blondie and David Bowie in the other hand, and it was impossible to do both things. What do you think would happen? There'd be less school going. I'm Joe, I play another guitar. <laughs> I wanted to be a rock and roller. Yeah, I play guitar and I just wanted to make wild noise. I play organ, I'm Bill. You play all the organs. No talk. You would see Warhol walking around with his Polaroid and handing out copies of Interview Magazine. So this was just what I thought every teenager did. It didn't occur to me that uh, what an unusual environment this was. Okay, we're, we're here sort of to uh, talk a little bit about the band and play some music and uh, give people a chance to find out what the student teachers are about, really, because I think a lot of people in New York, even though I know most of the people in the band are from the New York area, don't know that much about the student teachers. Unfortunately, we don't know anything about band. We seem to be a mystery to ourselves and everyone else. <laughs> well, sometimes that's effective. I don't know. Imagine this group of teenagers in the late 70s in New York City. Most of them are still in high school, a couple recently graduated. They're obsessed with bands like Television and Patti Smith, The Ramones, Roxy Music. Most of them come from fractured family lives and find community in the club scene. But get this, in the span of six months, they go from not knowing how to play instruments to headlining their favorite clubs, then opening for Iggy Pop, getting interviewed on one of their favorite radio stations, 89.1 WNYU. How did they make that happen? This ragtag group of best friends lived and breathed the scene. They spent all their time together, buying records, running fan clubs, reading rock magazines. They'd go to shows together, and they'd often get mistaken for being in a band. So one day in Bill's living room, they decide, well, why not? Let's form one. Just kind of sat down, and then everybody said, "Well, I'll play drums and I'll play guitar." And I'm okay. You play bass, and I said, "Okay." And then Lori said, "Well, I don't know if my voice will be good enough because she was going to sing. So maybe you should be up front. We'll have a female rhythm section." And then we started playing. <laughs> we all hated when bands felt like sports teams, and. Uh, with David and I both being gay, and Philip, and then later Joe being the straight boys, and then Lori and, uh, Lori and Laura being the female rhythm section, we really loved what we did visually. To us, it, I think it's more important than we have a concept and an idea before. I mean, before the music even. Before, comes about. before the ap ap actual technical ability, you right. know, because. We knew our instruments well enough to be able to convey the idea to an extent, and it's getting them on. easier. Right. But are, you, are you guys going to make it? I mean, do you think you're going to make it? Right after the show. <laughs> All of us together. It would be, it would be no, very serious. nice. We all knew we weren't musicians, and none of us cared. What we cared about is that we were going to have a blast. We were going to be cool. We were going to be the coolest kids, and we weren't going to imitate anyone. So while their days in the late 70s were spent in high school, you know, studying for physics tests or writing essays or learning French or being the captain of the basketball team, their nights were spent rehearsing, playing shows and hanging out in clubs, rubbing elbows with their heroes, just being feral teenagers. They drank white Russians because nobody carded them and nobody cared. They were immersed in the scene and bound to each other and 
There was nowhere they'd rather be. These were the student teachers, and this is their story in their own words. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Well, what's love got to do with it? Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? I would say that in a very real way, the whole beginning of the band was like one group relationship. We really did kind of all fall in love with each other. Philip and I had this fraternal love, which was so strong. I mean, when we were in fifth grade, he broke a guy's nose because the guy sat in my chair when I got up. And then, you know, Bill and Laura had this beautiful love friendship and Lori and Bill had this beautiful friendship of like this galvanizing passion about the music and then when we all started to hang out together I mean you know Bill had a little bit of a crush on me uh Lori and I kind of almost hooked up and then Philip and Laura got together even when there wasn't a physical thing between members we were kind of all hooking up with each other as a group It's essentially six neurotic, self-indulgent people who, like, <laughs> everybody has to have their say. This is really group therapy. We don't have a band. <laughs> what, do you, what do you call your music, anyway? Uh, say it, say it. <laughs> Come on, Can we use that word on the radio? Existential part. No. Existential part. Existential pop. That's what it says the press yeah. Yes. In NME, they call this punk psychedelic surf pop. <laughs> Which is somewhere along well, the same line. NME isn't a hyphen, I think. Yes. I know, so. Really? That was good, though. People used to say, are you punk or new wave? And we actually answered, we're first splash. We're not punk. We're not new wave. The wave, the new wave is old wave. We're first splash. We had tried to explain people then, oh, we're this kind of pop band. They would have been like, oh, yeah, you're pop, right, uh uh-huh. You know, but there was like people like Charlie at CBGB's who thought that we were and waited for us to actually show through and sound a little more like pop than noise. We had a reputation as an art rock band. Before people saw it. Yeah, that was just because we didn't know how to tune our instruments. And And we didn't know how to play them. And we couldn't play. And we lost some fan. It was written up in Sun Magazine who had liked us back in the beginning. When we were like art. When we were an art rock band, and then we went commercial. What they don't realize is that we learned how to play a little better. (laughs) It was sort of like you want to take um, one hair out of the scarf and let it stick out like electricity's only gotten to that one little piece. We wanted to make something that I believe that um, stood out, was easily recognizable as not Elton John, not the Rolling Stones, not David Bowie and not Roxy Music and not television. This was the student teachers, our unique little corner of the world. 
Bill had a crush on a student teacher at his school. And it was a cute idea. And it was a cute idea. And a cute and teacher. Also, <laughs> you remembered it real quick. I said it once and made a full conversation out of it. It's a right. good name because it's like a phrase that exists in yeah. everyday life anyway. So Yeah, your own quantity. Yeah, yeah, quantity. People are acquainted with student teachers. And you can just put as many meanings on it as you want. So they formed mid-fall of 77, and in March they had their first unofficial gig. It was for career day at Bill and Laura's Quaker High School, Friends Seminary. They played in the gym where Laura usually played basketball, and about 50 students showed up. Uh, I had borrowed, I, I had taken a couple of bass lessons. I had a bass teacher, Laura had a drum teacher. We borrowed their stuff. I was playing this big white, um, I think it was a precision, Fender Precision, and like I kept like hitting the pickup bleeding. I was like, this is so punk rock. And some of the blessed were there. And they saw it and they were like, hey, we're playing Max's this Sunday. You want to play? And we're like, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> So they said yes. And on Easter Sunday of 1978, they played their first paid gig with the blessed at Max's Kansas City. And then they got their first gig at CBGB's. First time playing at CBGB's, we opened for uh, Lydia Teenage Lunch, Jesus. Teenage Jesus. Yeah. And that was because, um, you know, Lydia was friends with the band and stuff, and she liked David and stuff, so she said, well, why don't you open for us? You know, and this was without an audition, and at that point, Charlie didn't know us or anything. He and then after, after we played and got off stage, Charlie came back and said, smoke and set. He said we had the karma. Yeah. And he said he, he liked it. David became the lead singer not because he knew how to sing, though he used to love to sing in Temple as a kid, but because he was hot and they decided the hot one should be up front. It turned out he loved it and he savored every damn second. We're the student teachers. We're the audience. When I grabbed the mic stand, I was like, working the mic stand you know i was pushing throwing it down and stepping on the the bass and having it fly back up into my hands you know i was practicing moves because i was like this is this is what i'm gonna do i am gonna rock this out i am gonna show everybody what it's like to be a teenage rock star and i didn't know if i sounded good I just knew that I was going to wail and make a lot of noise with my mouth. I was going to snarl, and I was going to trill, and I was going to scream. And I was going to hopefully be somewhat on key. I wanted to thrill them. I wanted to, I mean, you know, I wanted them to want me badly. Jimmy Destry got involved about six months after we started, and he got involved with us after he saw us play, I believe we were opening for The No, a band that was run by Gary Valentine, the original bass player for Blondie. So Jimmy Destry, the keyboard player in Blondie, decided that he needed to produce a band as well. 
and he likened that it would be the student teachers. So he came backstage and he told us that night, I'm going to take you into a studio and we're going to record a single. And we said, who are we to say no? And, you know, he sat with us at the table and he bought us all drinks and he handed out cigarettes and he started handing out drugs because that's what he did. Um, and, you know, he just, he just, he was overwhelmed with us. He loved us. And we were all like, because hmm? we, I'm not saying we didn't think we were great. We loved, we thought we were great, but it's not like we thought we were that great, you know? And he wanted to um, record uh, some of our songs, particularly The Quake, which Bill wrote, which is about, I guess, being Quaker. <laughs> uh, and it's because we, we, Bill and I went to a Quaker high school. Jimmy Destry from Blondie became the band's producer and uh, guider, if you will. He really had a crush on Laura. Well, I'm 15 and I'm being, being approached by this big rock star. I mean, what would you do? <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying that I'm not. I, I, I'm not saying I'm the greatest person on earth and that I'm morally sound and, and fabulous. But at 15, you know, it's very complicated. Um, and you don't make, you don't know really what you're doing or why you're doing what you're doing. And so, um, yeah, here there's this big rock star and he's interested in signing my band and, and, and recording my band and he's freaking gorgeous. You know, what are you going to do? Okay, sure. <laughs> and that was a major thing because here was somebody, you know, with all this newfound clout, Blondie was getting quite big. And, you know, he took us into the studio and you know, we recorded the, uh, the first single on Oric Records. We got to go into a studio with a window in front of us with the control board, record something, then come out and sit on a couch and listen to it played back. How cool is that? Like, how did this happen? How did we get here? You know, it's a make or break environment we wanted to like do good and he got good out of us there was this trajectory a crescendo that was going up and up and up and it just seemed like each step was the right step and the next step you know the recordings that we did with jimmy i mean we recorded at electric lady at bland studios Every step that we took felt like we were being ushered into greatness. place I think on 12th Street I think it was called Duck Studios and it was February of 1980 and we had uh, gigs that weekend at CBGB playing um, Thursday, Friday, Saturday so we're practicing and the door opens and Jimmy walks in and behind him oh my god that's David Bowie is David Bowie 
And it was pretty cinematic, I have to say, because I think Bowie was always naturally cinematic. Um, there were invisible movie cameras on him wherever he went. And he walked in, and I, in my memory, he was wearing a kind of a trench coat, you know, and he, he like walked in like this amazing demigod that he was and was just kind of like acting polite and uh, like, oh, don't mind me. I don't want to interrupt. Keep playing, you know. And so all of us were agog. He went, went behind uh, Laurie and stood behind her and held the, the bass up to her. And I think she was literally dying inside. Steve Bowie's sitting next to me. I've got, you know, like big, like curly hair. And I can feel his like breath right next to me. We're tuning up. First thing I remember him saying is, um, I was like, give me an A to Bill, like hit a, a key, the A key, so I can tune to the A. And David Bowie says, play a minor. It's always best to tune to a minor. I thought that was hilarious and all these, like, you know, I was making up what he could possibly mean by that. And he says, you pull the strings and I'll turn the peg. So in retrospect, I'm like, he probably thought I wasn't capable of tuning my bass. As a 17-year-old kid sitting next to the biggest rock star she's ever been in the same room with, that she's absolutely madly in love with, I was like, Oh my God, he's turning the pegs and I'm pulling the strings. I so can die after this. Lori was trembling because he was behind her, talking into her ear, holding her hand, basically. Um, and so that was, to me, it was like, this is real. Like, we are going to be, we're going to make it. This is it. And then he was gone. <laughs> Things, you know, kept building, kept getting better gigs. Got the gig opening for Iggy at the Palladium on uh, in Halloween 1979, and that was huge. I mean, that's a huge place to play. Where have you been playing uh, besides Burbank? We played at the Palladium recently. Yeah, yeah we open yeah. for We Iggy. play there all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got a house band. Yeah, that was the largest audience we've ever played for. It was about 3,000. The friendliest. <laughs> it, it went over really well. We were a lot more frightened. We played also, we played the Palladium with Iggy Pop, and we played there at my father's place with Iggy. And at the Palladium, I don't know, it was a lot better reception than my father's place. They threw things at us. <laughs> we could open a French fry. fry. They have the best French fries. <laughs> <laughs> Learning the hard way. It's an We got a ton of attention very quickly, but it was like, it all seems very unreal. We're like, oh, I guess we are actually a band now, and I guess we're really making records, and I guess we're really going on tour. Philip had this <laughs> phrase, he would say, we, we were teenagers surfing on the wave of the apocalypse so there was a a sense of like we are riding this and we're going to ride it out and it's going to be an amazing ride i remember we were on tour uh i think we were playing philly and uh philip in his usual humor said oh we're a rock band on tour we should trash the hotel room so Lori got up dutifully unplugged 
a table lamp and then sat it gently into a garbage pail. She's like, are we done trashing the hotel room? And he's like, yeah, it's beautiful. You know, we were headlining whole weekends at CBGB's with bands, you know, that we used to open for, opening for us, drawing thousands of people and actually making money for the first time. We were trying to be big kids and rock stars. We were living the life. We got to, like, um, I can't believe I said living the life. I think a lot of people, when they saw us and they liked us, they thought this was something that took a lot of rehearsal. It didn't. It took a little bit of acclimation. We loved each other, and we could do this thing with each other, and it worked. There was this sense of this unit. So that sense was really strong, and it stayed really strong, all the way up until the kind of feeling of a rift started to develop because of Laura spending less and less time with the band and spending more and more time with Blondie. I think we should just go in there and just do, take every cliche as far as lyrics and hooks and whatever, write a song, let it go to the top ten in America, get the record contract with a fabulous lawyer, and then get a whole, you know, then be ourselves, right? And do, do an album that has the cuts and the production the way we want it. Laura, of course, but, has been hanging out with the Blondie people. Unfortunately. <laughs> and all of us were feeling kind of betrayed by her ascent. And I actually remember there was an interview uh, with WNYU, and she was saying stuff that if I were, you know, around us at the time, I would have said. And it was stuff that Jimmy was saying to her, which is, we're in the process, we're going to do a photo shoot, and we're going to put together a press kit, and we have to do a bio, and we're going to have a demo, and we're going to send it out to labels. And all of us were kind of like, oh, I can tell where you've been hanging out, because that's not how we roll. We don't have a press kit. We don't need a bio. We're us. We're going to play. Somebody's going to love it, and we're going to go. And, it's, and so her whole, that professionalism that Jimmy was trying to inculcate in her was not something that we felt very uh, interested in. We just thought, we're going to blow up. And so that wedge kept growing. What do you think is the thing that keeps the band together? No one else will have us. <laughs> it is. Well, yeah. We're it's none like, of us are musicians. It just wouldn't work with other people except for the group of people that started it's it. It's band chemistry. So you see what it is? And is we that could add on but not delete. It's not necessarily that we were a bunch of musicians who found the ad in the back of the voice or something. Right. We're just a, a bunch, bunch of, of neurotic alcohol. We were just a bunch of kids. <laughs> going to concerts. Going to concerts and, concerts and, and found out that... You could get in free at clubs if you were in a band. No, so right. <laughs> That's the basic reason why we formed it. Sometimes you might even get paid. Let Laura. Go ahead, Laura. One sentence for me, okay? Just one. grand marriage. Last time you said that. <laughs> anyway, and that... Well, I think we got a leaky roof here. Laura was living with Jimmy Destry, and the band became less of a priority. She was focused on Jimmy's life, hanging with David Bowie and other rock stars, waiting in green rooms during Blondie's TV appearances, and traveling with them all over the world. But she was still in high school, adamant about getting good grades, studying for exams, and writing papers from tour buses, and also missing rehearsals. You can't make me feel what I can feel. 
She was always either away, um, we couldn't rehearse, we couldn't do anything because she was, you know, she was off touring the world. They got so blonde, he got so big so quickly. And there was so much money and there was so much drugs. And um, she was never around and when she was around, she wasn't around us. She finally missed a sound check at a place called Squat Theater and the band the band that we were playing with that night was a band called Voodoo Shoes with uh, Donna Destry's band. And the drummer of that band was Laura Hayden. Um, so Hayden sat in during sound check because Laura didn't show up and just sounded great. And we all looked at each other like, why do we need this fucking headache, this fucking bullshit? I think David I, was the one who first said, uh, you know, we, we want you out of the band. And I was shocked. I, I was just blown away. I mean, it, it had been, you know, it had been my sense of identity for a couple of years. And here they were saying, you know, you're not with us anymore. I was like, I could hardly speak, could barely catch my breath. I, I didn't know what to say, and I cried, I just started crying. And um, they got up to leave, and I think the last person who left was Philip. And I, you know, I said I'm so sorry to, to them, and and he said he was sorry, um, and uh, you know, then they left. I ran upstairs and called Jimmy, and I screamed in tears. I'm not a student teacher anymore. The band definitely went on after Laura, and we had another drummer, also named Laura, who. <laughs> was really good, but it didn't feel the same. Somebody had kind of come in who just, that was her role, to be the drummer. It wasn't that same feeling of all of us forming something and doing something together. If the band wanted to keep going, we knew we had to, you know, I had to get gigs and we had to play, but I think after Laura left, a lot of the joy was gone. It was, to use a very trite saying, you know, a loss of innocence. Like, oh, you know, we're not just kids, you know, putting on a show anymore. Now, you know, this is a real band and we had to make this really ugly real life decision. And maybe this isn't so much fun anymore. I think once Laura was out of the band, the initial chemistry was destroyed. That was pretty much the end of the good. I mean, we can surmise that Jimmy wouldn't have been interested in the band if he hadn't been interested in Laura. And if Laura hadn't left the band the way she did, we might have been able to do something more. For the next six months or so, the band played gigs and they recorded new tracks, but it was a whole different thing. It was two years into the band's life and two years later in their teenage lives, which from 16 to 18 is kind of like a lifetime, right? And it felt different. They were different. It was 1980. 
The scene was changing. The bands they loved weren't making their favorite records anymore. Their original love story, the thing that propelled them to make music together so effortlessly, despite most of them not being musicians, ended. And their drive to keep making music together in that same way kind of did too. It was less about the collective now and a little more about ego. And in those last months of playing, the band just slowly imploded. We were doing a lot of speed then, so we played everything at 112 miles an hour. It's, it's yeah, you know, you look at some of that stuff like, whoa, take it easy. It's a very unproduced record. It sounds kind of terrible, but also kind of psychotic and wonderful in the sense that it really captures like the student teachers falling apart that that record just sounds like you know six people way high on speed or drunk just like clawing at each other bill would offer me money to not drink before we went on stage you know he would get plastered and then sometimes on stage, he would get very antagonistic. He would try and knock me into the audience. He would, you know, I wouldn't call it passive aggressive. He got aggressive at times. <laughs> and so, you know, as much as that can be a fun visual, it was not a fun experience. I wasn't very nice to David. I was, I wrote the songs that got on the records and I certainly, you know, through that bit of small weight around. We started to use an instrumental to open the set. And I thought, well, okay, if that's what everybody wants, then I'm down with that. It kind of builds the drama more for when I come out. Uh, and then Philip had a song where basically all I did was da 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 And then I'll have another drink, and then I'll go. I'll have another drink, then I'll go. That was the whole song. Those were the lyrics to the song. It said a lot about Philip at the time, that the only lyric in the song is, I'll have another drink, and then I'll go. Um, but it also said a lot that all he wanted me to sing was da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And so I felt a kind of a betrayal. You know, I didn't want David to sing my songs anymore, and I was drinking a lot. Yeah, we were all just in different worlds then. It wasn't, you know, five people playing hearts backstage. So the idea of it being the right time for the band to end, you know, that coincided with the, the emotions, the kind of eruption of emotions at the final gig. There are some photos of it. We're all dressed in different Halloween outfits. But the, the conclusion of the final gig just erupted into mayhem. And we, you know, a lot of our friends got up on stage with us. And then, you know, Philip fell off stage. And that was one of the nights he tried to knock me off stage. And there was just this melee that went on, which was really like, this is the, we're going to make sure that this is the final gig. Now that we've decided, we're going to make sure that this is it. It's almost like we need to annihilate and bury this band. And that is, in a way, what we did. 
I'm getting tired of the view And I wish the lights would dim Cause I see what this is leading to And it looks real grim Cause I know I got my looks And you got yours I guess I must have seen them in a million stores. Ah, looks. Oh, man. Ah, looks. Oh, man. Ah, looks. Oh, man. I always loved David's oh man in that. That was the, the moment which, uh, when the ah looks, oh man. Because that was when he, he was his most Steve Harley or, or uh, Brian Ferry like. Getting to meet all of the people that um, constituted the student teachers and allowed us to be a band and to play at clubs like CBGB's and Max's and Hurrah was a justification of all of those days I spent locked in my room in an apartment on Avenue D in Brooklyn, listening to Nico records, listening to Velvet Underground records, thinking there's something different out there that I need to be a part of. And I know I got my looks and you got There was this connection between the five of us. And it was just very deep. Alex. Oh, man. Alex. Oh, man. I get him on the bus and I get him on the street and I get him from you. Always looking for a the song ends with Philip's very plaintive guitar solo. Yeah.